I feel like our church is lopsided. I don't know if that's because everyone wants to sit close to the door to get out faster, or if it's just too far to walk over here. But I'm glad that you are here to worship with us and study the Word uh, together this evening. Tonight we, we turn back to the book of Colossians. And so I want to ask that you take your Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, starting uh, at verse 8, is where we're going to be looking this evening. But before we start digging into this text and examining what it says, we need to understand a certain truth that is portrayed throughout the New Testament. And if we don't understand this truth, then it'll be hard for us to understand what Paul is saying and why we need to take this so seriously. And that truth that we need to understand before we dig into this text is that we are at war. I don't mean a war that is fought with, with tanks and guns and bullets and airplanes, that kind of war, but I mean a spiritual war that is taking place. A battle for our hearts and for our minds. A battle for what we are going to be devoted to, what our hearts are going to be given over to. And the New Testament talks about this battle going on that we need to be aware of. And it uses terminology associated with warfare, with soldiers, with battle, over and over and over again. Paul, when he was writing to, uh, to Timothy, he said this. Listen to what he said in 2 Timothy chapter 2. He said, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. So if we are Christians, then we are called soldiers of God. And that means that our captain, our commander-in-chief is God. That we have been enlisted as soldiers of God. And this imagery is used throughout in other places. Uh, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, passage you're very familiar with, uh, putting on the full armor of God. Listen to what Paul says there. He says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his, not, of his might, and put on the full armor of God, so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now, it, it may be hard for us to, to think about the Christian life as, as being a war, as a battle. But this is the terminology that Scripture uses over and over to describe our Christian life. Because we have been enlisted as soldiers of God, and that we are to put on the armor that a soldier wears, and we have an enemy that we face. 1 Peter 5.8 says that, the, um, that we are to be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now what does a, a lion do? A lion waits looking for its prey and then pounces when the prey isn't aware. And so we, we are facing an enemy who is seeking to devour us. An enemy who is after us, watching for an opportunity. And so we stand as people who have been called soldiers facing a battle. And for us to understand this passage, what Paul is going to 
be talking about, we need to understand that concept, that we're involved in a spiritual battle that has been taking place for thousands of years, and the same spiritual battle that we are facing today is one that the church at Colossae was facing during this time. Now, you remember what we said about the church at Colossae. This was a church that was young, but it was doing very, very well. Paul rejoiced that the gospel was going forth from them, and Paul was excited about the things that were taking place there, but but he knew that they were facing a challenge because he knew that there has been some kind of false teaching that had crept into the church, and so Paul is warning them about that false teaching and the danger that it presents. And so this is where we come to tonight, that we're actually going to start dealing with this false teaching that they are facing because the danger is that that false teaching will take them captive in this battle that they are in. Now, here's what I want us to understand. We need to hear the same message that Paul gave to the church at Colossae. We need to hear the same message of caution that Paul gave to that church. And tonight, as we hear Paul's caution to look out, be on guard, watch out for what what surrounds you, we need to take that same caution because there is a battle that we're in right now. A battle for what your heart is going to be devoted to. So let's turn now to the word and listen to what Paul says, Colossians chapter 2, starting at verse 8. Hear the word of the Lord. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. In these verses, there's really only one command that's given. One thing that Paul says, do this. And it is the command to be on guard, to watch out, see to it, be vigilant, keep your eyes open. All these different ways that we could say that. This is the same word that Paul uses when he is, uh, or when, that Jesus uses when he is describing the, uh, the persecution that the disciples are getting ready to face. When he's describing that the destruction is going to be coming to Jerusalem. Remember that passage where just before Jesus is crucified, he's speaking with the disciples and he said, now you're going to hear about wars and rumors of wars and you're going to hear about famine and you're going to hear about nation rising against nation and there's going to be earthquakes remember that passage where Jesus talks about all those things that are, that are going to be coming well the very next thing that he says to his disciples after saying that those things are coming that they're going to experience he says this same word watch out beware look out because these things are coming and this is the word that Paul uses here with that same kind of intensity that you need to have your eyes open about what it is that you're facing. Because, because you are facing philosophies and empty deceits that are seeking to take you captive. Now you remember that I said that, that we are in a war. Now the word that's used here for taking captive is the same word that would be used by uh, describing an army going in, doing battle against uh, a city, and then taking captive the people in the city as slaves, or taking the, the goods of that city as their own. It basically means the idea of, of plunder, or 
taking those things that you've won in battle. And so Paul says, you're involved in a battle. And so be cautious, be aware that you're not taken captive as a slave in this battle. It's that kind of wartime picture that he says, be on the alert, be warned because you are facing these things. And so then he goes on to describe what it is this false teaching is that they're facing. Now we don't know, we don't know exactly what this is. We can't look at it and say, this is exactly the false teaching that was going on at the church at Colossae. We can guess about some things that, that it might have been involved with. But Paul lists out just a few things that can help us understand, at least get an idea of what was involved uh, with what they were facing. He, he calls it a philosophy. He says, don't be taken captive by this philosophy. Now, when he says that, he doesn't mean that all philosophy is bad. What he's basically saying there is a worldview or a, a, some system of thinking. Don't be taken captive by some system of thinking. Then he describes it as an empty deceit. When he calls it an empty deceit, he's talking about something that on the surface, surface looks good. At first glance, it, it may sound good. At first glance, it may even sound like it would be something that is, is spiritual and can make you a more spiritual person. But in the end, it turns out to be deceit. And so he says, don't be taken captive by something that's a false philosophy or something that is, looks good on the outside, but the end becomes some empty deceit. Don't be taken captive by one of those things that is according to the tradition of men. Notice where it says that in verse 8. That's according to the tradition of men. Don't be taken captive by something that has been thought up by man's wisdom and not the wisdom of God. Don't be taken captive by something that man has put together in all his great thinking as compared to it having come from the word of God. And then finally he said, don't be taken captive by this false philosophy, this empty deceit that is according to the elemental, elemental principles of the world. Now, that's kind, of a, that's kind of a strange phrase. What does he mean by these elemental principles? Well, during Paul's time, this is a, a phrase that came to mean this, basically the spiritual realm, the spiritual world. And so basically what he's getting at and saying here is that don't be taken captive by a false philosophy, some false teaching. Don't let that lead you astray because Satan and the forces of darkness are actively at work seeking to lead God's people astray. False teachings are inherently part of demonic work to bring about a false understanding of who God is. So Paul says, be sure that you don't fall prey to anything that is false philosophy, that is empty deceit, that is according to traditions of man rather than according to Christ. And so that's what we know about the false teaching that's going on. Now we can speculate about what that might be, but basically it's going to boil down to somehow there was some kind of teaching going on at the church at Colossae where there was either some false understanding about who Christ was or there was some false understanding about how we live out the gospel in relation to having become a Christian. And it was something along those lines. And Paul's saying, watch out. 
beware that you aren't taken captive by those false teachings. Now, I want to do something tonight that's a little different. Normally what I like to do is I, I really like just to hammer through a text and just go verse by verse and just walk through word by word what does this mean and how do we apply it to our lives. But Paul's right here is talking about the church being cautious that they're not taken captive by some false teaching or some empty deceit that they're facing. So I think it's helpful for us maybe tonight to think about maybe some of the main empty deceits that are out there that are seeking to take us captives, captive right here today uh, at Grace Baptist Church in Somerset. What are those things that we are facing, those empty deceits, those false philosophies that are out there that are seeking to take us captive? And this is just kind of arbitrary the way that I'm throwing these out there. We could talk about a whole lot of different things tonight, but I wanted to kind of divide it out to just some false philosophies that we, that we encounter and some empty deceits that we encounter. We could talk about a ton and examine what they say in light of Scripture. But I want to just point out maybe, maybe the top three or four, there's some things that we might face that we need to be aware of as God's people that we are not taken captive in this war that is raging. All right, so let's start with, um, with a false philosophy. I would say probably the dominant philosophy the dominant teaching that is, that is out there, that's just this thought-out worldview, is just pure naturalism. Let me, explain, let me explain what I mean by that. When I say naturalism, what I mean is this view that all there is in the world is just the natural world. The universe is all that exists. It's the view that there is nothing supernatural, there is no God, it is just the physical world and the physical processes that are involved in, uh, in the world. And this, honestly, honestly, this is the dominant view that we see in, taught in universities today as the dominant scientific view. And it is out there and very abundant uh, that we face all over the place. And here's the thing. It's very militant. What I mean by that, it is, it is actively seeking to convert the world to the belief that there is only the natural world. The universe is all that exists. You, you are really backwards if you believe that there is a God who created just by the word being spoken. You're backwards if you believe that. You have people like Richard Dawkins and some of these other atheists who, who boldly proclaim just how foolish you must be to believe this sort of thing that God created or that natural processes are governed by God. No, all those things are simply just the chance processes that have arisen over 15 billion years of the universe's existence. And this is the view, really, that's being pushed and taught uh, throughout our world today. It's the dominant view that you'll hear on TV. It's the dominant view that, that you would hear, uh, read about in magazines, in uh, newspapers, uh, just all across. This is what you'll hear. But the problem is, is that this is being pushed as the only view across the board and to our kids. 
I was talking to some of our fifth graders about what they learn in school. And they are taught that what happened was by chance there was an explosion and everything popped into existence apart from any act of God. By chance we arose from single-celled organisms to become what we are today. And so there is a battle that is really going on for our hearts and our minds. And I want to tell you, if you have kids, it is being especially aimed at them. I brought um, a science book that I borrowed from Todd. I don't know if he's brushing up or, or what, but he, uh, he had a science book that I borrowed from him, and this is a middle school textbook, and it has an entire chapter on just how everything arose through natural processes through evolution with a complete denial that there is a God who created everything. But here's, here's perhaps the scarier thing. I want to read you a quote that comes from a professor at Northwestern University, which is, which is a very prestigious university. And he talks about how parents have their kids, they devote their life to teaching their kids, to raising them up, giving them their worldview, to teach them what they want them to know. And this professor talks about then, these kids are brought to a school when they go to college. And this is what he said. After a teary-eyed hug, mom and dad will drive their SUV off toward the nearest gas station, leaving behind their, their beloved progeny. And then what? And here's what he says. And then they are all mine. And it's my goal to totally tear down what they have heard in the past and to put my own views in their head. This, there is a battle. There is a battle going on for our hearts and for our minds. And we need to recognize and understand that this war is going on and we need to beware of what is taking place. And especially if you are a parent, you need to know that your kids are being challenged with this. So this is, this is the bold, out-in-our-face philosophy that we need to contend with. But there's, there's more than just these kinds of bold, in-your-face philosophies with people like Richard Dawkins staring at us and saying, you're an idiot for believing that there is a creator. There's also more subtle, subtle deceits that you and I need to be aware of. Subtle deceits that, that may sound so good, but if we are given enough time, they will grab hold of our heart and they will take us captive if we're not careful. Now, there's, I would love to really spend two months talking about some of these dangers that we face, but really, I just want to list out just a few very quickly, some empty deceits that, that are in our culture today that we face. Or the first one that, that I want us to think about is the empty deceit of relativism. Uh, most of you all have, have heard that term before. Uh, 
this really has, since the 1960s, uh, has really come full force uh, into our postmodern culture that we have now. Uh, and if you lived through that time period, which was before mine, uh, then maybe you remember uh, some of those things where the idea of truth began to shift, saying that there really is no truth. You can't know truth. There is no absolute truth because truth is relative to me or to you. The truth for Mike may be different than a truth for me. And so you can't say that your truth is true for me because your truth is just true for you, not true for everyone else. You see, truth is just relative. And so we live in a postmodern culture and with truth has, truth has just been tossed out the door. And so you're really just a backwards person if you say there is an absolute truth. And so with that idea of throwing out absolute truth, we've also thrown out the idea of absolute morals. If you don't have any absolute truth and you don't have a supernatural God who is the ground of truth, you know, a la naturalism, then what grounds do you have for there being any right or wrong? So it's really bigoted of you to say that there is any right or wrong. And so if this person wants to do this, you cannot say that it's wrong. And so we see the full effects of that right now here in our culture in which, well, honestly, morality is just, it is gone. Where anything goes, whatever you want to do is fine and acceptable. Just don't tell anybody that what they're doing is wrong. Now, what we've seen happen is the church accommodate to that idea. And you've seen churches all across our land that have thrown out the idea of absolute morality. And so we have churches that have accepted and accommodated to homosexuality, churches that have accommodated and accepted uh, abortion, and any host of other uh, sins that we could uh, talk about. Now, everyone in here, I bet, is going to stand and say, that's not me. You are probably not going to, to stand up and say that truth is relative, and you're probably not going to stand up and say that I believe morality is relative. You're probably going to stand and take a, a strong stance on what is right and, and what is wrong. I have a feeling that you wouldn't be here at Grace Baptist unless you were concerned about truth, unless you were concerned about the right understanding of God's word. But here's, here's maybe just a subtle way that this can creep in. Because we've all heard for so long that right and wrong is just relative. Here's how this can creep into the church. It can creep in by, by us being kind of squeamish, wishy-washy when it comes to standing for right, what is right, and refusing to take a stand against sin within the church. Here's what I mean by that. It can be easy for us to look and see another Christian who's involved in, in just some unrepentant sin and for us to look at that person and then kind of step back and say, that's their business. That's between them and God. Who am I to say that what that person is doing is wrong? Who am I to go and talk to that person and point out their sin. Who am I to judge what they're doing? 
And so what we see from that is kind of a squeamishness, stepping back from what Matthew 18 says about holding one another accountable and doing church discipline. Because we want to, to when we see a church member in unrepentant sin, we kind of want to stand back and say, I'm not really sure if I should be involved in, in saying that what they're doing is wrong. And so when we have the very clear command by Jesus that if a church member is in unrepentant sin, you go talk to them. And if they don't repent, then two people go talk to them. And if that doesn't work, you take them before the church. And if that doesn't work, you remove them from the church. Rather than us really be willing to stand strong on that, we, we may want to take a step back from it. Because, you know, it's just kind of hard to say that what that person's doing is wrong. And who am I to step in and say that that's wrong? And this is just one of those ways that, that the empty deceit that our culture presents to us can come and affect the church. Because it, doesn't it sound so good to sound humble and say, who am I? I've got sin of my own. Doesn't that sound pretty good? And so when church discipline comes up, we say, you know, I, who am I? I? I shouldn't judge. So I'm going to step back. And if, if there's some impurity in the church, who am I? I, I? I shouldn't say anything. So you, you see how that relativism can, can creep into our thinking there? That, that's one of, the, uh, one of the empty deceits. A second that's, I think, really closely related to that is the deceit that doctrine doesn't matter. And, and here's, here's what, we, what we might say. You know, doctrine and theology really isn't all that important. I just love Jesus. Now, that sounds good. That sounds really good, doesn't it? Because you know, what's our greatest command? love God with all our heart, soul, mind, strength. And so it sounds good. I just love Jesus. And so I'm not concerned about doctrine and theology. That's, that's for somebody else. That's for a pastor to worry about or one of those guys at a seminary. That's not for me. What are we commanded to do? Commanded to love God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our mind. The fact that we have this God who is so far above us and so great and wonderful and awesome in all he does and all he is. And so the, the very thought of thinking about him and the intricacies of who he is and the doctrine causes us to love him even more. And if we aren't a people who are concerned with doctrine, if we aren't a people who are deeply theological, who are deeply doctrinal or passionate for right doctrine, we leave ourselves open for error. We leave ourselves wide open for these false philosophies, empty deceits that Paul calls the same thing as being taken captive in a battle. We must be a people who are passionate for knowing the truth who study it, who read it, who aren't ashamed to carry around a book of theology, 
even if you're not a reader. We must be. Because we are followers of the one true God and we have to know who that God is. Sounds so good. We just need to be people who love Jesus. But what Jesus is it? Is it the Jesus of of the Mormons who is a God, not the God? The Jesus of Jehovah's Witnesses who is a God, not the God? The Jesus who wants me to have my best life now? Is it the Jesus who, uh, who's just a good teacher? Which Jesus is it that we love? It must be the Jesus of Scripture. Otherwise, we have fallen for an empty deceit, a false tradition. And Paul says, beware, watch out, so that you don't fall for that. Keep your eyes open. Beware. So that's an empty, empty deceit that I think that we face, especially in our day when doctrine is kind of devalued. The third one, the third one is what I think is, is, is most subtle that I don't know if we'd think about very often, but I would say is probably one of the most dangerous for us in the church in America today, and I know is the one that I probably struggle with the most. It's the empty deceit that I should live my life for my own pleasure. I should live my life for what's going to give me the most happiness that this world has to offer. Now, now if I asked everyone in here, do you believe this, that that's what we should do? Everyone in here would say no. I feel pretty confident that you would not say, oh, I think the purpose of my life is to get as much happiness out of this life that I can. That's probably not what you're going to say. But this is what I say. I say that this is the default position of our society. How does our society make decisions? Whatever's going to make us happiest. Now think about, think about how these questions are answered. Who should you marry? Whoever makes you happy. What job should you do? What should your career be? Whatever makes you happy. What should you do in this situation? Well, whatever it is that makes you happiest. And really, this is what our our American culture is built on. Think about every advertisement that you see. Everything that you see when you're watching the ball game or when you're seeing the commercials that come on TV, what is it telling you? Every single one of them is telling you that you're going to find your most happiness if you'll just buy this one thing. Or if you'll eat at this particular place, that's going to give you the greatest happiest happiness. You're going to have more happiness from a McDonald's hamburger than a Hardee's hamburger. And so it's an appeal to making your choices based on what's going to give you the most pleasure right here, right now, from this world. Now, none of you are going to say, none of us are going to say that, that we make our decisions just based on that. But let me show you how this can creep in. All right, I'm going. Uh, I'm going out to eat after supper or after uh, worship tonight. Uh, I'm going to go eat some pizza, and I've got some choices. I've got uh, Little Caesars, uh, Domino's, uh, Little. Uh, let's see, what are Papa John's, Donato's, Pizza Hut, I think Snappy Tomato. That's a new one. Uh, we've got lots of different choices out there. I, I really Little Caesars is cheap. That's not that good. So, I, I, I don't want to go to that one. I really like Donato's. Thin crust, excellent. 
gives, makes me happy. Uh, Papa John's really good. They've got the great dipping sauce. Uh, Domino's, eh, kind of middle of the road. Uh, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to choose whatever is going to make me happiest in that. Uh, and it may be Donato's. It may, yeah, who knows? And that's okay. I'm making a choice on my food based on what's going to make me the happiest with that food. That's good. That's all right. But what happens is we kind of translate that mode of thinking into other areas. And so we start thinking, will I go to worship or will I do this other activity? And our line of thinking goes, maybe unconsciously, what's going to give me the most pleasure? What's going to give me the most satisfaction that this world has to offer right here and right now? And this thinking of getting our pleasure right here and right now from what this world has to offer becomes an empty deceit for us. And here's what I want to contend. I want to contend with you that this is killing the church in America. That the church in America is being killed, being taken captive because we are making our choices and living our lives for whatever is going to give us the greatest pleasure that this world has to offer right here and right now. And so we see this in so many ways. So what is the criteria for which church will attend? It's whatever is going to make me happiest or it's whatever church is going to make my kids happiest. What is a good sermon or a good Sunday school lesson? It's the lesson or the, the sermon that I feel the best about, that makes me the happiest when I leave? Will I be involved in ministry in the body? Will I give myself to some ministry in the church? If it will make me happy to do so, or if there's not something else that would make me happier to do. Only if that's going to make me the happiest. Why... Why do we think that missions involvement is so low in America? I think that it's because so many of us have bought into the lie that it's better to stay where it's safe and where it's easy and we can have the most pleasure this world has to offer than to give ourselves to something that may cost us everything. Why is it so hard for me to give sacrificially? Why is it such a struggle for me? If, if I'm honest, it's probably because I think that I would get more pleasure from spending on myself than spending on someone else or for something else. David Platt says this. Listen to what he says. He says, A lesson I learned is that the war against materialism in our hearts is exactly that. 
it's a war. It is a constant battle to resist the temptation to have more luxuries, to acquire more stuff, to live more comfortably. It requires strong and steady resolve to live out the gospel in the middle of an American dream that identifies success as moving up the ladder, getting the bigger house, purchasing the nicer car, buying the better clothes, eating the finer food, and acquiring more things. And this is the empty deceit that is so dangerous to me and to you to live our life and make our choices based on what is going to give us the most satisfaction that this world has to offer. And I believe that that has caused so much damage in our churches today. How else could we explain that there are 16 million Southern Baptists but the IMB has 5,000 people on the field. Why do we not have more? Could it be that, that we have been taken captive by the empty deceit that it is so much better to stay where it's easier and safer? How is it that I can spend so much on myself so often give so little and care for the poor when scripture is so clear that my duty is to care for the poor and needy around the, here and around the world is it possible that I have bought into an empty deceit that this world has so much pleasure that I should focus on Paul tells us to be on guard. Watch out that you don't get taken captive by these things. What's his antidote? What's his solution to this? This is it. Listen listen to what Paul says. I want you to hear his line of thinking, starting back at verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of man, according to the elementary principles of this world, rather than according to Christ. For in him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him, you have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority. So here's Paul's flow of thought. Don't be taken captive by these false philosophies. Don't be taken captive by these empty deceits. Because what you see, Christ is the fullness of who God is. And he is better than any empty deceit, than any philosophy that you will ever hear. The fullness of God dwells in him bodily. And when you have the fullness of God in Christ, he says in verse 10 that we now have been made complete. Literally, that says we have the fullness. If you are a believer, you know God who dwells incarnate in Christ and you have the fullness living within you. So on the one hand, you have this empty deceit. You have this false philosophy. You have this stuff according to man. And on the other hand, you have Christ. And Paul is screaming out, Christ is better. Christ is better than all those things. You have this false philosophy of naturalism that says there is no God. There is only chance that happens. And then Paul says, no, you have Christ who is the creator through him, everything was created. On the one hand, you have these empty deceits of relativism. On the other hand, you have Christ, who is the truth. He says, I am the way. I am the truth. On one hand, you have this empty deceit that doctrine isn't important. On the other hand, you have Christ there, the fullness of God, knowing that fullness, 
that richness is just rich for our lives and for our souls. On the one hand, you have the, the world crying out. Live for the pleasures of what you can get right here and right now from this world. And then on the other hand, you have Christ, who is better than anything this world has to offer. On the one hand, you have the world saying, no, don't devote your life to missions. Don't give your life to a a people group in Asia or Africa or South America. No, stay where it's easy. Stay where you can have the most ease in your life right now, rather than giving it all to some people you don't even know. And opposed to that, you have Christ who is better than anything that you can have, ease of life, safety, comfort, right here and right now. Christ is better. This is where you should say amen. Christ is better than anything you have. And he is worth sacrificing it all. He is worth it. Don't, don't be taken captive. Don't be taken captive by these things according to man. Be taken captive by Christ. Let him be your sole satisfaction in this life. And him alone. So I I just end with one question. Is anything taking you captive? Is anything in this war that we're facing, is there anything that's taking you captive right now? Let us be a people who are taken captive by Christ. Not all these things according to man. Let's be that, Grace Baptist Church. Let's pray. Our God, we... We thank you that the fullness dwells in Christ and that we know the fullness and we've been made complete in you. Guard us, God, from these empty deceits, these false philosophies, these things that are according to man and let us see and know and live the truth that that Christ satisfies the way the philosophies and the way the stuff of this world can never hope to do. May we be holy, 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 completely devoted to you and to you alone, and may you keep us on guard against those things from Satan that would seek to take us captive. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.